Making you feel old. That's what this is called. The year is 2015 AD and nostalgia is commonplace. People look back at the past with affection and derision. Anniversaries are a celebration of another passing year, and nothing becomes more celebratory than when movies go into 10, 15, 25, 35, 50, year, 100 years onwards. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yes. Um, and on the wages of cinema today, we'll look at this year's biggest anniversaries. Um, right. Now, the thing about 2015 is that you go back, you know, 5, 10, you know, every year ends in a 5 or a 0. Yeah, so and it's we either, like very tidy numbers. It's either the start of a decade or right in smack in the middle of it. And I think that each year you can kind of look at one particular movie that makes it stand out. Uh, one movie that you look back at it and you think, oh yeah, that came out then. Yeah. I remember that year because that came out. And, you know, anniversaries I think are important. You know, especially if you're into film history, if you're trying to chart uh, what it is that we do. And in 2015, we have a lot of key anniversaries to celebrate here. Some noble, some uh, infamous. Yeah, and especially and, because if you go back 100 years, uh, technically you kind of get the start of cinema. Uh, but we're going to work our way back to that. Yes. Um, Taking you back to the past incrementally. Yes. We're going to go back now. <laughs> <laughs> to 2010. Yes, in 2010, I think the movie that we both kind of looked at as a landmark uh, was Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Scott Pilgrim criminally overlooked in 2010. Yeah, it kind of got swept under the rug as, uh, in terms of the box office. Uh, it kind of came and went. Uh, now, let know. me ask you, do you think this was because of overexposure of Michael Sarah? Hmm. Because what I've heard is that Scott Pilgrim didn't do much because, like, Michael Sarah had just had, like, five films or something come out within the last few years. And by the time we got to Scott Pilgrim, everyone was like, another Michael Sarah film? Um, I mean, well, he's he's a known star. I mean, people will go see a movie because he's in it. You know, some people might not. I I don't know if necessarily he made it either way. I think that Scott Pilgrim, people had to you know, be told about what it is. Um, I think that uh, the comic book wasn't as big as uh, other franchises. It had kind of the the sort of opening that I think Kick-Ass did that year. Mm. Um, the only difference is that Scott Pilgrim's a much, much, much better movie than Kick-Ass. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Scott Pilgrim was... Uh, you know, I saw it in the theater with you. Mm -hmm. uh, I got the DVD for Christmas. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I watch it it's one of those movies I just feel like I gotta watch it every few months. Yeah, it's one of the great uh, relationship stories I feel like in our modern time. Uh, you know, also, uh, you know, it uses uh, the device of fighting and uh, <laughs> as as a uh, as a way of kind of expressing um, fighting is the way to solving emotions. everything in Scott Pilgrim. Pretty much, you know it it takes. Uh, you know, it takes like kind of the world of video games kind of seriously in that way, or not not seriously. It's it's a lot of fun, obviously, but all the fights that happen are obviously extremely overdone, and you wouldn't want it any other way. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, um, I uh, if you still haven't seen it, 
That's another one of those great movies. Yes. Now, go back another five years to 2005. <laughs> right. you, can, oh. you can keep doing that if you want. Um, uh, we had the end of the prequels. Uh, Star Hooray! Wars. <laughs> of the Sith. Yay, no more prequels. We're free. Did you see this in the theater like I did? I saw this more than once in the theater. Really? How many times? Um, would you, will you hate me if I tell you how many times I saw it? No, go ahead. Three times. All right. Well, that's not as bad as I, I thought it would be. Well, you know what it is. I, I saw it a couple times. I saw it when it first came out and, um, each time I saw the prequels, um, it was like the, for me, it was like kind of the law, the law of diminishing returns. I, I first saw them. I would first see the prequel in the theater and I, at the time I was younger, I, legitimately enjoyed them you know i was i was in a theater you know how you've said in the past that when you're in a movie theater when you're seeing a movie in the theater you almost think it's like the greatest thing you've ever seen yeah sometimes i don't know if i quite had that but i think that the the theatrical experience of seeing a star wars movie in a theater the first time is always a thrill even if is a prequel revenge of the sith you know it's clearly the best of the prequels or yeah. is that relative well, uh, to you? The best of the pre- prequels is like be- winning a uh, ugliest man contest. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I guess you could say it's the best. But it's uh, I mean, again, it's, what there you're are talking still about, some flaws in that movie. Yeah, it's a pyrrhic victory. Uh, it, it's it, it, it. I think at least it is building to what we've been waiting for. Yeah. You could say. You're right. You know, we've been waiting through this whole trilogy. Okay, how does he become Darth Vader? You there. Know. He became Darth Vader. There. And Emperor Palpatine went, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, actually, uh, though, I will say Ian McDermott's great in the movie. Yeah. As yeah, the he Emperor? has, like, uh, I think his best scene is in that sort of opera house. Yeah. Where he's explaining, you know, oh, you can use metachlorians to make people live forever. Yeah, well, he has a whole backstory, which is his own story, which we, we you could we could think that it is, that that's how he, he's the apprentice who kills his master in his sleep. It's highly implied, yeah. Yeah. It's also worth mentioning this because we've got another Star Wars movie at this end of, end of this year. We do, and, I mean, the, the good thing about this Star Wars movie, which... You know, it could it's be good. It could not be good. Since the last Star Wars movie, no matter how bad years, it was, ten years since the last Star Wars movie, and thirty-eight years since the first Star Wars movie. Oof. Yes. My God. Um. I mean, the good thing going for this is that because we don't really know much about it, it's open to, you know, who knows? We actually imagine this: we're getting brand new characters that we don't know anything about. Plus Isn't that Han thrilling? Solo and Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia. And for those of you who like him, Chewbacca. <laughs> we obviously like him. Well, you do. He's okay. I don't know anything about Chewbacca. <laughs> yeah. I, no, it's just when he he pops up next to Han Solo, and of course, you know, he's there. Um, we're idiots. We're home. Um, so yeah, Star Wars. The last prequel came out ten years ago. Yeah, aren't R-O-T-S. you glad? Yes. Yeah. Well, it happened, and we're done with it. And George Lucas is off sitting on his mansion or whatever. Um, he's sitting on the mansion. He's like he's on the roof. Hi, I'm. I create Star Wars. Why, why don't you come inside, sir? What are you doing on top of that house? 
<laughs> he's he's surveying he's surveying the world with his high powered telescope for all copies of the holiday special. <laughs> you'd, you'd better hide your copy, Jack. Uh, I should. Okay, two thousand. Two thousand. Uh, um, now there were a lot of movies that came out that year. Some memorable more than others. I remember that year a lot because that was the first time I saw American Psycho. Yeah. Um, it was also first time that. Christian Bale made a big impression on me as an actor. He had been working for a number of years. I mean, he he got his debut thanks to Spielberg in Empire of the Sun. Right. Uh, and you know, and he'd been working steadily in the '90s. He but... was in a movie that I had seen a lot in 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 uh, elementary school called Newsies, which is oh, a yeah. Disney live action film. <laughs> Wasn't that like a musical where yeah, like, was all a, the kids are singing? It was a musical about newspaper boys in the early okay. 20th century, and. Um, this I, I remember this film very distinctly because he we saw it basically every year because it was the, the movie that our te- music teacher kept showing us and we never saw the end uh. because we would see it like up to like two thirds of the way and then stop. Mm. So I saw a lot of the of newsies and eventually this it, <laughs> and it's kind of weird because yeah. you saw this guy all the time and it's like oh yeah he's gonna be Batman someday yeah, yeah it's exactly. kind of a weird perspective oh oh yeah absolutely that's uh the movie's kind of mediocre but actually kind of enjoyable mm-hmm. uh but yeah american psycho this is like um i don't know if i could describe this as like a punch to the gut but it's like it's a, punch a very... to the it's a it's a kick to the solar plexus how about that i think yeah that seems pretty decent like still like still a great movie it was one of those movies that i saw at a formative time in my life where you know, I watched it and I thought, wait, you can do that? Yeah. You can kind of have this character who's unrepentantly nasty and make him your protagonist and we're following along with him and, you know, everything is very satirical and, you know, we're watching these scenes where he's uh, about to either kill or have maim. maim or have, you know, crazy sex with. And he's talking about Phil Collins and uh, Whitney Houston and, Phil, and the one Huey scene in, the in American Psycho that always sticks with me is like uh, Patrick Bateman has the two prostitutes and he's like yeah. and he's just like had sex with them and then he opens up that drawer yeah full of like sharp crazy stuff and he says we're what? not done yet and, and then, then just and then you, you just see the prostitutes leave like with a little blood coming out of their nose and I'm like what happened yeah. <laughs> That, that freaks me out so much. The the movie I I ended up reading the book uh, several years ago, and they they did a great job in the movie of capturing a lot of the essence and a lot of the actually the story in the book. Uh, also, they I mean they did leave out a lot of things that would have made the movie like unreleasable. Oh, there are things described in the book that are just like. Oh god, I can see why people had a problem with this book when it came out. And here's the thing, like Patrick Bateman, he's completely unredeemable, but he lets you in. He he, he doesn't he close lets, you up. He off. lets the audience into every intimate detail of of his life and you see his thoughts and you understand exactly who he is and where he's coming from. He's completely upfront about how he is like the epitome of this shallow 1980s New York culture. Yeah. You know that he, you know that the moment for me too that sticks out is early in the movie. You're seeing his preparation for the day, and he's going through all of like the lotions and creams that he uses and the exercises. And, yeah, well, he also like, he's pulling off like this mask, yeah. and he's talking about there is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, and it ends with him saying, "But I am just not there." Like that <laughs> always sticks out with me, and 
yeah, this movie made Christian Bale a star. Uh, when they announced that he would be playing Batman, I was really excited. Not necessarily because, like, I I never like it, I still not sure like he played a great Batman, but he played a great Bruce Wayne. And the seeds yeah, of certainly. it are in Patrick Bateman. Like the scene in Batman begin the scenes in Batman begins where Bruce Wayne is acting like a total jerk. <laughs> he's he's channeling Patrick Bateman really well. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, uh, and actually, Batman Begins was another. 2005 movie so oh there we go i should have mentioned that as our anniversary but whatever huh. uh so two movies from 2005 um 1995 we get the birth of pixar with toy story the the day the big screen debut of pixar well yeah i mean they've done short films um yeah and what's interesting about toy story if you read about the history of this movie like they were actually they were working on a script and they present they presented to the studio they were all ready to go and um, the studio told them, no, you can't do this. And they completely threw it out and said, you have to start from scratch. And so they had to quickly throw together, like, a new script. Like, and I don't know was why it, this like, Was it Toy Story all the way? Like, they showed them a script to Toy Story, and then they did another one? It was... I, I don't remember why the why the, it was rejected. Like, I'm sure that there is, like, some kind of, like, history behind it. Um... It also happened with Toy Story 2, apparently, as well. Uh, although I think that was more of like an internal thing where uh, where they were offered it. Um, oh, I think well, there were there were other thing. There are some different things. Like apparently, early scripts featured Barbie doll as a prominent love interest to Woody, uh, and apparently Mattel wouldn't let them use it that time. I think they had it had to happen to Toy Story 2. It, it was it was copyright and 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 depiction problems. Mm. You couldn't have Barbie. Oh, oh! I'm actually looking at a note. Let me just read this. So Jeffrey Katzenberg often gave notes that he wanted more edge. Uh, Pixar presented an early draft of the film. Oh, of the film to Disney, oh. not the script. Oh God. Okay, I, I I mistook that. Presented an early draft of the film to Disney on November 19th, 1993. Maybe this was before they fit, really went deep into making the animation. Maybe they had recorded the voices. And done kind of, you know, in animation, they have outlines of stuff. Like, they have the kind of early animatronic, I don't know. The result was disastrous. The film was deemed unwatchable, and John Lasseter recalls simply hanging his head in shame. It presented Woody as a, quote, sarcastic jerk who was constantly insulting the other toys. Katzenberg took Walt Disney feature animation president Peter Schneider in the hall after the screening and asked him why it was bad. Schneider responded that it was, quote, wasn't theirs anymore. Disney immediately shut down production pending a new script. The story team spent a week on a new script to make Woody a more likable character instead of the sarcastic jerk he had been. I saw Toy Story in uh, in the theaters. Yeah, me too. This was uh, this was and a big I don't one. remember it, and it didn't blow me away. Even the, no? despite like it was good because you know you think like oh 3D animation and ah oh, this is the the birth of an era yeah. and I was just like no it was just another movie to me and it was a movie I liked. Uh, but I never really saw anything special about it. I mean, it, and then it just became uh, its reputation huge. kind of built over time. Yeah, I I think from the start I I loved this movie. I um I was I was big into Disney animation at the time, and this was something you know I'd never seen before. It didn't blow me away in the way that like The Lion King did, where I I had to see that like four times in the theater as a kid. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, that might be a shameful admission to some of you. I don't care. Lion King was awesome. Uh, but the effects of it are, are clear. 
Toy Story three D without... is has supplanted two D animation forever. You probably. could look at Toy Story as kind of like the start of what we is now commonplace. I mean, when was the last time we got a major theatrically released movie that was a hand drawn animated film? Princess and the Frog. Yes, I mean that was six years ago. Yeah, but that's not that's not the but standard. Was, I mean, it was, aside it was from, cashing in on the novelty of a two D film. Yeah, aside from that, and maybe the Studio Ghibli movies, you don't really get major theatrical releases for an, like hand drawn animation that much. Now it's all you get. Sometimes claymation that still has its niche. Yeah, but now as far as the standard goes, kids, uh, kids, you know what you know what it is though. I think kids kind of know if I want hand drawn animation, I'll just go to TV. Yeah. It seems that uh, 2D animation has been relegated to television, and it's still done with computers now. Yeah, I think hand drawn is now an anachronism. You could say that a lot of it has to do with not saying it's bad, uh, just saying movies have to keep impressing. They have to keep upping the ante to keep people coming to see a movie in a theater, not to just stay home. So a movie like Toy Story was a benchmark in that way, where Pixar put down its flag and said, "Okay." Um, you know, we're trying something new here. That doesn't mean we're not going to give you a bad story. We're still trying to make you memorable characters and things that make a movie work. Yeah, and Pixar is still going strong today. Yeah, we you got could a new argue, one coming out. You could argue that they have never made a bad movie. Um, Cars 2 is kind of lame. It's not bad. Eh, really? I would say that, like, it's weird, though. It's I've heard people recently, though, say, man, Pixar has lost its game Inside Out better be what brings it back to greatness. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Brave was awesome, and I really liked Monsters University. So what have they done wrong, really, aside from Cars 2 They've since Toy sequels. Story 3? You know yeah. what it is? It's because they had four movies in a row uh, several years back, and they were all like masterpieces. Right. You know. And they keep throwing in Oscar no- and ev- and everyone just keeps throwing them Oscar noms. That, well, not even noms, they win. Yeah. You know, uh, if you get that like no nobody, you know, people love to watch people rise to the top, but when they get to the top, people love people to knock love them back to tear down. You down. Yeah. <laughs> you you can't win in life. Pixar, we are probably going to keep trying to knock you down, but and, I want you to yeah. keep Killing your usurpers. Yeah. I think what's going to happen, I think what people, like, I've talked about this maybe with you or other people, is that, you know, you'll kind of see a little ebb and flow in quality. I mean, Disney animation, regular Disney animation, they kind of fell off, like, in the early 2000s they had in a, a big way. They had a huge uh, yeah. valley after the death of Walt Disney. And well, it never quite picked up until... No, well, they and it picked it, up it, in the 90s. No, well, that's what I'm saying. It didn't pick up until... Uh, Little Mermaid and the Disney Renaissance. Yeah, and yeah. then they had, and then it fell off again when you had like Brother Bear and Home on the Range. But <laughs> now they're picking up again because now you have Frozen and uh, and uh, yeah. Big Hero Six. Yeah, so they're doing so, great. There we go, Toy Story. You don't have to feel part. sorry for Disney though. Yes. Um, <laughs> all right, 1990. Um, Did before... anything important happen in 1990 ever? Um, there was this little movie called Goodfellas that I, I kind of like a little bit. I don't believe you. I'll have to show you court papers showing that. Now I'm exists. just going to play Layla while I look at different <laughs> disturbing scenes. <laughs> different dead bodies that Robert De Niro has artfully choreographed. Um, yeah, no, Goodfellas, I think, is one of those movies that also, uh, 
made a big impact on the industry. Like uh, without, I and it wasn't. It, I, don't, I find it hard to believe that Goodfellas was made as recently as the '90s. It feel it's like such a staple that I feel like it has to be older than that. Well, I mean, it was set in the '60s and '70s. For the I know, most part. but it still feels that way to me. Really? Maybe it's, that's what's well, a sign of like you know Scorsese. You know, he made a movie that feels really fresh and relevant, but it also captures his, the period extremely well. Well, and again, it's the timelessness of the of the rise and fall of of a criminal. Yes, which is a classic American story. It's yeah, it's one of it's. Um, yeah, it, it it captures that aspect of it brilliantly. It captures the American dream brilliantly, and for me, yeah. it's kind of the story of the American dream. Like, because you have new film character. students. If you want to make a film that will be any good, make something about the American dream. It usually doesn't hurt. Yes. <laughs> for God's sake, Harold and Kumar is about the American dream. Yeah, all <laughs> they just want to get a burger. What more? What's more American than that? Yeah, especially when our forefathers crossed the ocean. George Washington posed for that painting of him on on the boat. Exactly. So you could Henry get a White Hill Castle burger. Coked himself up <laughs> and and moved to the to the Midwest because of the American dream. I don't know. Uh, but no, but yeah, this was a major one for me. Um, and I think and Goodfellas is shown in psychology courses in colleges. Oh yeah. These days, because it's about environment, it's about yeah. upbringing, uh, uh, which develops your attitudes about life and mm-hmm. about what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. It's all uh, point it, of view is huge in that movie. Yeah. The fact that you know nobody nobody says in that movie, "I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry that I hurt these people really badly." Yeah, and everybody has yeah. their hand out. Yeah, um, yeah. The the thing that he's sorry about in the end. Is that you know the life? The life is over. Yeah, I don't get to have a good time anymore. And in a way, you kind of feel with feel for him because you go through him through this go with him through this entire exciting journey, and now he's just stuck in a crazy prefab house. Yeah, well, he became a rat. That. Yeah, well, which yeah. you know he saved him. It, he saved it's, himself and he saved his family. He and it, it's an interesting twist for me. I don't know if I talked about this when we first talked about the movie in episode one, but. It's a kind of nice subversion for me of like the old Hayes Code movies where a character had to, you know, turn good at the end. They had like if even if you were dealing with a story with criminals, they had to get their comeuppance. Yeah, and it's here like, you get it's a, like the public enemy. Yeah. Public but, enemy, um, or Scarface or one of those old gangster movies. But here it's you know, it's sad. The ending's kind of a sad thing. You can feel for him. Even but though also, the criminals go to jail, but like a life is lost, yeah. a way of life is lost. You you can feel for Hen- for uh, Henry Hill, but in in the end, he does get what he deserves. Yes, in, you know, in a very poetic way. Mm-hmm. All right, let's All right, go so, back to 1985. Great Scott, we're in 1985, Andrew. We have to get to the clock tower before it strikes. Oh God, what do, what do you want me to do? Um, <laughs> well, this no, the sucker's electrical. No. I screwed up. The back to the future. Back to the future. I was gonna say, yeah, the sucker's electrical. But I need a nuclear reactor to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity I need. We have gone uh, past the uh, expiration date of Back to the Future. I well, think. the date. Well, the date is coming up. Like in uh, Back to the Future Two, 
which came out in 1985, um, 1989, that's when they are going, that's when they go to the year 2015. Although that takes place in October of that year, I believe. Oh, so we have a few months. We have a few months before. Those, those hoverboard inventors may just pull it out. Work on it, Hollywood. We're waiting on our giant sharks that come out as holograms. I know. <laughs> you got four months, more than enough time. Just take it, just stay focused. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine if, Imagine if there was like a sort of ability to be clairvoyant uh, in 1985 to look ahead to the future. Like all, all that would be really different is that you'd have a lot of people who now have like one hand always looking down at a phone Man. and attached to their laptops and their like iPods and you know it's. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's. Although I would say though, if you watch Back to the Future two. It does show a lot of um, it does show people communicating through you know screens in the wall. So we do kind of have that almost. Otherwise, not much. Maybe not by much. But um, I mean, we're gonna cut you some slack back to the future because the greatest sci-fi movie of all time, two thousand one, is way past its expiration. Date. No, I want my. Why don't we have our ship that like spins? Yeah. Why don't space? we have our centrifuge ship and Pan Am space service? Yeah. Or and- our voyage to Jupiter. Yes. And our murderous AI. <laughs> I think we might have murderous AI very soon. Well, there if we you go. Listen, if you listen to Stephen Hawking, like, we're dangerously looking towards uh, becoming, like... Actually, I, I don't know if he said it or someone else said that in the future, rich people are all going to get cyborg upgrades. Wow, way to, way to kill the buzz, Stephen Hawking. <laughs> uh, but back to the future, just to briefly mention it. This is a movie that very much deals with you know, the legacy of history. The fact that, you know, Marty goes back to 1955 and becomes sort of responsible for breaking apart. You know, <laughs> have his his mother gets a crush on him. Oh, man. And, uh... <laughs> oh, boy. I can't even... Like, I didn't even... You know what's funny? As a kid, I didn't even register it as being, like, icky. It's, you know, even though it's incest, te- technically, like... The mother has a crush and even at one point kisses Marty romantically. I know. And she's like, you you, you kiss like my brother. <laughs> Isaac, she, she has that line. Oh, God. They're making out in the car. and Yeah. yeah. Um, but, and again. Loose but it's with, funny. Yeah. Loose with its time travel mechanics. But who cares? Yeah. So, like, <laughs> you you, it's kind of like when you watch Jurassic Park. All right, I know that dinosaurs can't really be brought back this way. Like, you're going to get blood from mosquitoes, okay. And then you're going to fill in the gaps with frog DNA? Yeah. Um, But, you know, you can buy that enough for a movie. And in this case, you can buy that, you know, okay, a bolt of lightning will give your car enough energy to... uh, go into time travel. And your heart is pounding up to that moment. That, you know, it's funny. (laughs) The number of times I've seen this movie, I've seen this so many times, and yet the last time I watched the movie, there's the whole sequence kind of leading up to the climax where Doc Brown has to set up the clock tower so that it connects everything so the lightning goes. There's a point where the the wire drops. Yeah. And he goes, and, and then there's a point where he's trying to put the plugs together. And yeah, it's not going, and he has to. And you're just like, "Come on, come on!" Yeah, and it still works. And by the time Marty heads back to 1985, you're just exhausted. 
<laughs> yeah, well, but yeah, they finally give you a, a brief reprieve. One thing I wanted to add, one, oh, I'm glad we're talking about this movie because something I've always thought about, um, a time travel question. I talk about this briefly, but okay. I'm curious about your thought of this. Okay. So I remember by the end of that movie, and spoilers. Okay. Just in case, it's who, maybe people haven't seen Back to the Future. Um, when, you know, Marty goes back to 1985. You know, and he, you know, he comes home, you know, he, in the morning, he, his parents are there and now, you know, his father is a sci is a famous sci-fi author and now they seem to have money and Biff is kind of subservient to them. Yeah. And, you know, things are now really good. All right. Now Marty, you know, he clearly did things to actually strengthen their parents to get together. And yet, why doesn't he know this? Why does he I know said. the things that happened to his? Wouldn't he have lived through that timeline? Well, yeah, but he's gone. It would have been a time paradox. So uh, I know. I, I could, guess it's hard to show that in a movie. Like I've. Because well, by about, the time we get to that part, we are like two minutes away from the end of the movie. I know. We, it's, we just it's, gotta it's, wrap things up and move on. Yeah, <laughs> I just the thing I think about it is that, like. You know, Back to the Future was touted when I went to college as being an example of like a perfect scre screenplay. Oh, sort of. You know, everything in terms of how it's set up, how characters are introduced, uh, the how how much time is spent in that first act to setting up Marty and then setting up Doc Brown and the time travel and how that at, at even the point when Marty travels, the structure of the script is kind of like perfect. Yeah. In a sense. Um, which I think is a good is, is I could agree with, but I I think that there are certain time travel questions you can have about that. It plays movie. it loose, but in the end, it all works to the film's. In benefit. the end, it, it, there's a reason why this is still one of the iconic. There's a reason why Nike I think has now made l shoes that lace themselves up. Yeah, <laughs> if if we have no other reason to be thankful for Back to the Future, it's for that. Yeah, and uh, and the two sequels that followed. Which I got I got to revisit this film very soon. That would be fun to do. I I showed it. Corey had never seen it until five years ago, and we went to the. It's the to fifth it. anniversary of her seeing Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, talking about anniversaries. Yeah. All right, Back to the Future. All right, you now, don't have to go back in time and get your parents back together to see it. You just have to go to a library. Yes, Chris and Crispin Glover. You know, say no more. Sweet. All right, 1980. Uh, we talked about Star Wars in 2005, but 1980, we got arguably the best Star Wars movie. Definitely the best With Star Empire Wars Strikes movie. Back. Yes. We got the film that had... Uh, I think there's still some humor in Empire Strikes Back. Even though people talk about it as being a dark movie, uh, in, in large part because of, you know, the, the stakes that are happening for the characters and... You know, Darth Vader's role in it. It's only dark in the fact that by the end we we're left with a very sort of ambiguous ending. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. Our heroes, they're they're off to try to get Han Solo back, and uh, there's been kind of a victory in that they're all alive, but still people are missing. We've learned terrible things. Yes, and uh, yeah, but who, what can you say about Empire Strikes Back? That no, yeah, I mean this movie's been talked to death, but. You know, I could try to say something. I think that uh, this was a movie that made a big impact in my youth. Uh, I, I didn't see it when I was really little. I think I first remember seeing it when I was around like 11 or 12. When I was 
when I first got into Star Wars, I thought Empire Strikes Back was my least favorite. There are a lot of people who say that when yeah. they're kids. I, I loved Return of the Jedi because that was the action-packed finale. Yeah, at, well, Return of the Jedi, they also, there are a lot more creatures. Yeah. Uh, you know, Empire Strikes Back, all you get is the... Empire Strikes the Back is, a char- is more about the characters. Yeah, Empire Strikes Back is more about, you know, okay, we're going to have a little bit of action at the start. We're going to yeah. have your, your awesome Hoth battle. But then we're going to have about an hour where we're just watching our heroes uncertainly sitting in the belly of a worm. Yeah. And Luke training. Yeah. Like, like, there's stuff in that movie that is really, um, uh, again, going back to sort of the Joseph Campbell thing, I think the, a scene that I think about quite a bit is when, and I didn't quite, I mean, I got it when I when I was younger, but I think it means more to me now, is uh, when, you know, Luke is training with Yoda, but he instructs Luke to go into this dark area of the of the the swamp right and he confronts he goes in the cave yeah he goes in the cave and confronts darth vader but it has the face of himself yeah can i tell you my favorite story about the empire strikes back please do i there's a little kid that i um whose family i know from church and he he was of the age where he got to star wars and okay. he saw empire strikes back for the first time and we all know the big um spoiler for the end of empire strikes back if you don't stop and then I, go like two minutes into let, the future. Let me tell you something. You don't Andrew. need a DeLorean. Let me tell you something, Andrew. Between the spoiler in Empire Strikes Back and the spoiler in Psycho, I think if you don't know this moment in history, I can't figure it out whether it's right or wrong. You must be <laughs> listening to a podcast for the first time. So in your here's life. the thing: this this little boy saw Empire Strikes Back and he and he heard that those lines. No, I am your father, and he was stunned. And he looked to his parents, and he said, he was talking about Darth Vader, he said, that means he's still sort of good, right? Oh. And I was, and I was, my my heart broke. <laughs> and I threw up my hands as soon as I heard that story. I said, yes, life is worth living. <laughs> well, he sort of predicted what, like, the emotional crux of Return of the Jedi yeah. is about. And then what they... This little ex- kid, he, yeah. he got it. He understood life. <laughs> I will never forget that as long as I live. Yeah. Ugh, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, and uh, there not much else you could say except that also, you know, Yoda, one of the great characters in movies. Do or do not. There is no try. Mm. I bring that one out in Taekwondo class every once in a while. And, and do they and the, do they just like hit you on principle? Well, I. <laughs> I did it once while we were I did it once while we were stretching and nobody said anything. I'm like Empire Strikes Back. Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> did no? Did people no. not get it? <laughs> I don't think they got it. Oh ah, my God. so let's go back to 1975. Now before I get into this movie. Let me just say, 1975, I think, was a great year in movies, and um, there are a lot of movies to talk about that year. Um, just to list off a quick list, because I know you know I don't want to do this podcast that long, but um, the movies that came out that year, though, um, aside from what we're going to talk about, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, Nashville, Monty Python, The Holy Grail, oh. um, yeah, uh, uh, Barry Lyndon... Um, God, I'm sure that there are some others I'm forgetting. Uh, but 
the movie that kind of changed the industry in a big way, of course, was Jaws. Yeah. This is the first movie released on, on a thousand screens. This movie came out. and uh, They put it out on a thousand screens. Like back in the day, a movie would kind of tour across the country. And they, put, and they decided, no, we're just going to put Jaws out like everywhere all at once. Because they were afraid the word of mouth would have gotten around that it was terrible. Yeah, well, they, <laughs> well this was a troubled production. It was like... The shark was really, you know, you, the, the cliched line was, the shark isn't working. Yeah. Uh, you know, because it kept breaking down. They were filming in the ocean, so there were problems constantly with that. It, it, it was, it could have been this director's folly, but somehow through him being a good director and having a good editor, they made a great blockbuster. Yeah. Like, they, like, um, I, I think, the thing is, though, about this movie, that what they got right I think that, you know, I think Spiel, it's been often said that if the shark had been working better, Spielberg would have put put it in the movie more. Yeah, it could have just ended up being another creature feature. It could have been another movie that, yeah, just that, you know, oh, there's the shark, okay. But because we're spent, we ha have to spend time with these characters, and because they're really well-written characters, you have people like Roy Scheider and Richard Dreyfuss, uh as you know, the sheriff and the oceanographer guy. Yeah. And then of course Robert Shaw. Oh, you know what I love in this movie is the mayor. He's just like the epitome of like the 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 person who is kind of the villain of the movie and yet he's not like a he's not a terrible person. No. He's just small minded and very much out for you know, it's July 4th, we have to keep the beaches open, we have to keep that money rolling in. Remember, amity means friendship. Yeah. Uh, you know, and yet by the, by the time the shark attacks really, you know, ramp up, you know, he, he's, you know, you almost feel sorry for him. You know, he, he's kind of in the hospital. He's in an unenviable position. Yeah, he's, he, you know, when he says, you know, my kids were on that beach too. Yeah. It's kind of like, alright, I can't hate this guy. Uh, so, yeah. And, you know, the whole first half of the movie is a setup for the second half. Yeah, it's really... And it becomes, it's, like... Jaws, it's two movies. Yeah. Jaws it's, has, like, sorry. A, a reputation as a scary movie, but really when you get boil it down, it's more of an action It's movie. a thriller. Yeah. It's, a, it's more of a thriller. Maybe the opening has the air of a horror movie. Because, yeah. the, you know, you don't see the shark. It comes as, like, a serial... Like a killer in a, in a slasher movie. You know, underwater. That scene still is scary. Yeah. But... It's, you know, it's really more about characters, and there's a lot of this movie that's really funny. There's a lot of stuff with Robert Shaw, how he interacts with Roy Scheider. Yeah. Um, well, a small thing to mention before we move on about this, how times have sort of changed. Um, in terms of humor, like, for me, like, when this movie first came out, there's a scene where Roy Scheider is throwing the chum in the water, and you know, and he said, you know, he turns and says, like, "All right, why don't you come down and chum some of this shit?" Yeah. And then the shark just pops up, and then Roy Scheider bolts up, and it's like, "Oh," and, <laughs> and that's right before you know he says the, you know, you're gonna need a bigger boat, which line. is an improvised line. Improvised line. Um, it's interesting how when the movie first came out, people laughed a lot at his line, you know, "Why don't you come down and chum some of this shit?" And then screamed when the shark came up. Yeah. When I saw the movie uh, a couple years ago uh, at like a midnight screening. People didn't really laugh then, but they laughed when the shark popped up and Roy Scheider bolted up. <laughs> like, nobody really laughed at the chumming, chum this shit line. But yeah. I found that an interesting moment. Um, 
So let's go back now. You know, 1970. 1970. CBS FM. All right. Um, now I know you haven't seen this movie, but I wanted to just mention briefly uh, the movie Woodstock. Uh, right. I have the soundtrack to this on vinyl. So you have the soundtrack and you haven't seen the movie. So you've yes. kind of seen half the movie. <laughs> you should watch it though. I for... have heard the movie. You should watch it. I think that freedom. Knowing... Yeah. Freedom. 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 The like, with the exception of maybe just a couple of performances that I don't think hold up. Um, I this movie is fantastic. If you love rock and roll, it's kind of the rock and roll movie of its time because you have people. You know, you have a wide range of acts. Like it's not just. Regular, you know, you have uh, the Who and you have Jimi Hendrix, but you also have uh, Sly and the Family Stone. Right. It's a little Crosby, acts, I think Nash. that stick out most. You know, yeah, that's the interesting thing because, like, I didn't know who Richie Havens was before seeing this movie, right. and you know, he's the one who like opened the concert and he kind of gets things going in a big way. I, I haven't seen the movie, but I have heard about like everybody was late. So this guy played guitar basically for five hours. Not, no, not five hours. He, he, people were running late, and he was like the one guy there. And they were like, all right, why don't you just go on? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, for a long time, he stayed, stayed out there. He did stay. I don't know how long his performance Maybe was. Maybe I should but... see the movie and actually find out for myself. Yeah. I mean, you should see it. You can actually see how they do go into a bit of, you know, the, the, the people that were there. They interview a lot of, like, the kind of hippie people but they also interviewed just regular folks that were already up there in upstate new york when this flood of hundreds of thousands of long-haired freaks come in yeah and some of the diverging opinions were some of people were just like oh this is great we're you know we're loving this and some people were like goddamn hippie scum (laughs) um you know there are a lot of great moments you know uh um when they decide you know we gotta make you know we're gonna make this a free concert from now on because you know, people aren't paying, <laughs> so we have no choice. Okay, uh, uh, and l- let me put in my final thought here. If this movie and Gimme Shelter have taught us anything, never hold a free concert. Yeah, well, yeah, it, when you get Michael Lang in charge of uh, your affairs, uh, things might not end up well. All right, uh, 1965. 1965. Um, while the Beatles are still rocking out, we get uh, the big one... Actually, at the time, one of the very biggest films ever released, The Sound of Music. Can you imagine, like, this movie is still in the top five released films in terms of uh, adjusted income. As a moneymaker. It is, yeah, massive. I can't believe that. I mean, what does this movie have going for it that makes it such a moneymaker? Like, I will, I will it's tell you. It's a long you, movie. It's, like, it's an <laughs> epic-length movie, yeah. It's, like, I will it, tell you, like... Now the interesting thing is, in terms of its gross today, it says 158 million on Box Office Mojo. Adjusted, it's number three of all time with like a billion, 1.1 billion dollars. Oh man, I can't I, even imagine that. Like, it was a family movie. Like you know, you take your family to see it. It's funny in the interview I just did with uh, Sarah Seeds. She talks about her obsession with this movie from, like, the age of three onwards. So it must have just hit people, you know, that you have this story that takes place right as, right in the rise of Nazi Germany. uh, Or, uh, actually, it's in Austria, I should say. Takes place in Austria. Yeah. Nazis are bad news. Yeah, Nazis are bad news. And you, it's really, you know, because it's the story of Julie Andrews taking care of these kids uh, you have kind of a religious side to it, I think. Yeah. Because uh, she originally starts out as a 
in a convent. I'm right. Oh god, it's been so long since I've seen this. Movie. Well, it's better than better than me. I I am one of the five people in the world who has not seen the Sound of Music. I think there are a few people out there who have not seen it. Like there are some people who like Sound of Music is not a movie that. I mean, I. I am one of those few people that are in the mid-range about it. I don't love it. I don't hate it. But you mentioned Sound of Music people. You don't usually get, like, a lukewarm reaction. You get the people like, oh, my God, I can't wait to see the Sound of Music again. And then you get people go, ugh, really? I mean, the best thing that came out of the Sound of Music was My Favorite Things. Because that song inspired John Coltrane and, you know, so many jazz artists. And I, I love the, the jazz version of My Favorite Things. It's like one of my all-time favorite songs. But can you imagine 1965? Like, even now, that's still high-grossing film. How different was the audience for films back then? I mean, nowadays, uh, it's like you're always going for for uh, teenage boys nowadays. Mm. That's the moneymaker. Yeah. And But back in the mid-60s, it was like family film, musical, third highest-grossing film of all time. Well, we also have to put into context, there was no uh, no cable, no DVD, no VHS, no Netflix, no nothing. All you had was you, to go you to the You make a movie. valid point. So if you love the... Also, you know, one thing, if you love the movie itself, if you love the songs, you'll keep going back over and over again. You know, why is Frozen a huge hit? Because you know, it's awesome? Well, no, but I mean, <laughs> a lot of people, like, that movie had certain songs and characters that re- like how many and, and, like, it people... re- and it got re-released in a sing-along version <laughs> follow the bouncing ball version of frozen came out folks you, you make a good point and and then I just, music still holds like they I did mean, a live theater version of it a few years back yeah on tv that became a big thing um, people just love it. I don't, I don't know. I guess people just love watching Julie I've, Andrews and Nazis. And well, stuff. who doesn't love Julie Andrews? She is a very likable, you know, she, she is a person who is a truly wholesome figure in movies. Between Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music, she basically cemented herself in the, the world. Julie Andrews. What? Bedazzled. Anybody? Oh. <laughs> Let's go back to 1960. All right. Uh, just briefly, um, well, I know you probably haven't seen this one either, but I'd be remiss to not mention the movie Breathless by Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, no, this no, is also another movie Godard. that... Yeah, this movie also kind of changed movies, you could say, uh, just by the nature of people who saw it. Um, today, it, it it's, pretty, it's kind of like a... A reverie of hipster, uh, hipsterness. I mean, the main character, you know, he it starts off with him, you know, stealing a car and killing a cop, but he's like the coolest guy around because he, you know, walks around in sunglasses, smoking a cigarette. The interesting thing in this movie is that you had one of the first times, if not the first time, where a character in a movie is very specifically, you know, modeled after other movie characters, or rather, like he. More, at least once, if not more than once, he looks at a picture of Humphrey Bogart and tries to do like the thing with his lips to, and he wants to be Humphrey Bogart. Huh. And well, I don't know, blame him. And you've seen like that's something that has been now just a commonplace thing in movies where other uh, characters want to try to be like characters in the movies, hmm. or that's something that a lot of movies didn't do. A lot of movies it has a relationship to film. 
history. that we see all the time now, but mm-hmm. back in 1960 yeah. was was very fresh. Yeah, it was very fresh. Um, like there's, I mean, some things in the movie don't hold up terribly well, but I think a lot of it is still a pretty fantastic movie. It's all. It was also an example that you could make a movie in on handheld. You didn't have to. You know, a lot of cameras back then were huge. Like, they were the size of, like, most of this room that we're sitting in. Yeah. Um, you couldn't really move them around. And Breathless, they, you know, just had a guy sitting in a wheelchair, and they would kind of back him up and have the guy point the camera at the actor to Ooh, get I gotta a tracking shot. That. Yeah. Um, so at some point, it might be worth to watch Breathless. It's, right. um, you know, but when I say hipster, it's very much like a... We're a very cool movie. We're like <laughs> Matt. It's funny when I talk to our friend Matt Rosen. He th- he says the movie's cute. <laughs> He's like, oh, isn't this movie cute? He's trying to be cool. Um, but speaking of movies that people remember for being cool, we go back to 1955 and get Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah, the movie that James Dean's defining role. James Dean's defining role. Say, sure. Yeah. I mean, well, he's only in three movies. Okay. <laughs> like so he maybe, had three defining roles. This was the most definingest. This is the definiest de- definition of James Dean. Yeah, this is where you're tearing me apart comes from, and I mean the original version. Yeah. Um, I don't love this movie. I have to say, I don't love it either. But you cannot argue its impact. It does have. It does have its importance. Um, is Dennis Hopper in this movie? It's either this movie or Giant. I think he. I know he's in Giant, but I think he has a very small role in this movie, I'm which not is kind sure. of cool. It's been I wouldn't a be while. surprised. Um, but you believe James Dean? He's got such. He does have screen presence. I like yeah, but even in uh, like even that in that part where he's really like, you know, towering me apart. I mean, you still believe that inside that guy, he's got. He's probably got demons. He's got stuff to figure. He he's got stuff to figure out. Yeah, exactly. He yeah. uh, you I, know, he he was he he you know the three main guys from that era uh that sort of brought that new version of acting into consciousness. It was him, Brando, and uh, Montgomery Clift. Yeah, and I think that among those three, James Dean's my least favorite. It's probably because like of the whole aura of his persona like of his fame that people have built around him yeah i mean when you die young and you have these three huge roles yeah and what uh that are famous i mean you can't help but be celebrated you you know you think about how people celebrate heath ledger and you know fawned over the dark knight when that came out but he at least had done a good number of movies before he died yeah but but nothing nothing as iconic as anything james dean had done it's it's you know it was a real loss i mean he was just i think he was just about hitting his stride when he died yeah and james dean he came out the gate strong but he never got a chance to really no probably himself maybe he would have burned out burnt out or maybe he would have he it's always kept going. it's always a question. I I was wondering the other day about Marilyn Monroe and whether like what her career would have looked like in the late '60s or going into the '70s. Oh man, I shudder to think of that. <laughs> what do you mean shudder? I I've seen I've the stories I've heard about Marilyn Monroe. Oh oh god, she and, was and, not oh, not a and, fun person to work with. She no. was like like she was almost she was like working with a cat. Like she would, you know, show up to set. Don't work with animals, children, or Marilyn, or Marilyn Monroe. Monroe. Yeah, because she would come to set. 
she wouldn't really remember her lines all the time. She would stay a lot in her dressing room. She had a uh, an acting coach on set oh. who really cla- clashed with the directors often. Um, it's weird because I think that if she had, it's 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 kind of sad to admit because I think she was really good in a number of movies. But if she had just stayed a model, she would have been perfect because she apparently was like a great person to work with when she was a model. Huh. But when she had to act, it was like. You know, yeah. it's sad. She wasn't an actress. No, she was, but she's been. She's got. She's gotten more mileage out of being an icon than out of That's a good being way an actress. It. I think that. It, but it, we've gotten a bit off topic. Yeah. Let's go back to 1950. 1950. When, I can't even think of a band from 1950. Well, there weren't. I don't even know if there really were bands back then. I think that was. See. <laughs> Well, I mean, you had big bands. You know, you had like, you know, uh, Duke Ellington and his orchestra, and uh, and Glenn Miller and his orchestra. The Ink Spots. (laughs) The Ink Spots. Um, A number of a number of big movies came out that year. Uh, You know, and All About Eve, which we've talked about in the show a couple of times, uh, was the Oscar winner that year for Best Picture. Right. But uh, when we talk about animation, you know, we talked about Toy Story, but. I I think uh, Cinderella was one of those films that people remember really fondly as an I epitome certainly... of classic Golden Age Disney. Yeah, this uh, would you be, would it's is it fair to say towards the middle of uh, of Disney's Golden Age? I think their last uh, like the last great film of animated film of Disney's Golden Age I think is is Sleeping Beauty. So you don't think uh, so the Golden Age doesn't go at all for you into the sixties. Well, what do we have? Because I really love... Uh, I know that some people don't love it, but I love The Jungle Book. I I don't think it lives up to everything that came before. Mm. Sleeping Beauty is one of my favorite animated films of all time. Okay. And I think that it has real artistry. It was, it was a Not high perfect, point but in it's, technology. Oh, but it's awesome. Uh, but, I, but later on you see that decline. And Cinderella is... It is the midpoint. I think that's where it's, they take things that they tried to do in Snow White and now they have more polish uh, they they're still doing things with like cute side characters supporting right. characters um, yeah I, I, I like Cinderella um, I, I <laughs> we talked about it so much on another podcast I wasn't yeah. sure else to say about well, it well the thing that, about me is it's very personal because like when I was a little kid I basically watched this every day Jeez. Not really out of choice, but because I think Compulsion? my parents were trying to make me be quiet, and that was the movie we had. Were you, like, very uppity as a kid? No, it's just like, oh, let's distract Andrew. <laughs> let's give him these singing mice, and yeah. he'll shut up for a little bit. But Cinderella is still fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, going back now to 1945, the war is over! Yes, um, finally. Yeah, how about that? Those Krauts and those Japs are done. I mean, um, anyway. <laughs> well, while we have movies playing such as The Corn is Green. Oh, I love The Corn is Green. Don't you love The Corn is Green? Let me tell you. Greenest corn film I've ever seen. <laughs> I think that uh, Dr. Seuss, if he hadn't done a book with that title, then he should have. Failure. Yeah. Failure at life. You'll Damn you never Dr. match Seuss. the achievement of the corn is green. Yeah. I mean, so green eggs and ham. I mean, it's coming out on Blu-ray sure. next year. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> uh, that year we get a couple... On cup- Netflix. Check it out. 
Sorry. You I won't be that. sorry. You want to hear my favorite story about the corn is green? Please. Okay. I'll tell you about it in the next podcast. Right? <laughs> I, I, I can't even. The, the, the corn, you could say, the corn is just popping away at your brain. And, and it's green. I know. It, it's like. But what else came out in 1945? Um, well, a well, I wanted to mention two different things. Uh, on the one hand, you had a filmmaker like Alfred Hitchcock uh, working with, uh, once again, uh, David Selznick. And this time bringing in, uh, for a little extra design help, Salvador Dali. Spellbound, right? Make Spellbound. Uh, a kind of psychological thriller uh, involving dreams. I don't think it holds up so much anymore because I think we all know that this is not how psychoanalysis works. No. But I, I think the story of Gregory Peck as the as the, you know that traditional Hitchcock-harried man uh, is it, it still an effective portrayal. Yeah. And you know Salvador Dali's dream sequence is still they hold up really well, a lot really great. Uh, you could it's almost like his paintings come to life on a set. Well, Dali had had a weird sort of eye for bringing surrealism a kind of natural look. Yeah, it's not so much abstract as it is like these are weird things, but they're painted in a realistic way. Yeah, exactly. If that makes sense. Um, and the other movie to mention briefly, which was on your list was detour yeah i loved detour it's basically the the template for not the template it's the it's the gold standard of film noir it is one of the gold standards for sure you look at film noir and you look at the tropes and you can look at detour and see the roadmap for it right which is which is interesting because it takes place in large part on the road yeah um also a, a great Low it's typical film. in the terms of structure, but it's atypical in terms of its setting. Yeah, its setting. Yeah, it something about it has a purity that I think if it had more money or more star power, it might not work as well. Maybe. Um, but I mean, a film done on the cheap that's now been preserved by the Library of Congress. It shows that you. Yeah, it's one of those examples. Also, Breathless was another one where you don't need to have a big budget for to. You just need to have somebody who has a creative vision and knows how to tell a story and tell it quickly. Right. All right. Speaking of which, 1940, um, war is impending in Europe. Actually, it's about to. It's already happening it's in America. People going don't to really, impend. Yeah, it's impending. It's going to impend. Uh, but in America, people aren't that into it yet in fact there i remember reading in uh chaplin's memoir that in america there was almost like a vague sense of like uh, in let's some not talk corners, about it let's not talk about it but yeah but chaplin makes the great dictator. let's not talk about the war but chaplin uh yeah great dictator yeah sorry <laughs> um i don't know i i don't think we've talked about this movie much on the show before not very much it's a very good film Yes. Although the uh, the main problem with it, with it is that Chaplin hadn't ironed out he had I don't think he had a, a much experience with sound. That's an interesting point. Uh, I mean, I think he used sound really well in in modern times and city lights. Yeah, but sil- but city lights in modern times are essentially silent films. They're augmented by sound in terms of putting in a soundtrack yeah. and special effects, but. S- the Great Dictator has has dialogue and it has. Yeah. Uh, you could say he was still learning. Yeah, and uh, you know it, it's a bit rough by any standard. 
I think there are a couple of moments that are nice in terms of the use of sound. That scene where where he is playing with that sort of Benito, Benito Mussolini yeah. stand-in. Yeah. Like, that guy comes in and he, he, he almost steals the film. Yeah. He's... <laughs> He's so boisterous, and they keep trying to to one up each other as dictators. <laughs> and ah, uh, oh man, it's just uh, yeah, one well, of those great films about the war that it doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. I don't think. Yeah, it 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 has um, you know, and you also have that speech at the end that um, I don't know. Do we do we call him the tramp in the movie? I guess, he, plays, Basically, he plays two it's characters. The same role. Yeah, he's he's, he's, well, he's called like the let's barber. Call him like, he's the barber. Okay. Yeah, we'll call he's him the, the barber, barber tramp. Yeah. But he comes up and he's sort of uh, pegged, if I remember correctly, as being you know because he looks just like the, the dictator. H- Hinkle, yes. Yeah, Hinkle. Um, Such a bald faced parody of Adolf Hitler. Oh, it, it was like right up there with like, and I, I actually oh, you talk about killing that, Kim uh, Kim Jong Un. Yeah. People brought uh, yeah. up the great dictator a lot when talking about the interview. Is like, well, these guys think they are Chaplin. Yeah, and it's a really gutsy thing for Chaplin to do. I mean, yeah. at at this point, Hitler was not as popular as he was, but like to come out that much that that strongly against Hitler. Yeah. In in a country which was dedicated to neutrality. Yeah. Uh, and basically being right. <laughs> yeah. History would vindicate Chaplin very quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, even though he was a Hollywood filmmaker, he was from Britain. And yeah. he saw what was coming with that. Um, although I, th- I think it's interesting that I think I read that if he knew, if he knew what horrors were really were to come, he might have not made the movie. Yeah. Like if he'd known about the Holocaust or anything. Well, but, that that's hindsight. Yeah, but is. I mean, you could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you never oh, know man. how those things. You never know that. Oh, oh, here's a thing called the Holocaust that's about to happen. Yeah. Um. Let's let now go back to 1935. Um, at this time period, the 1930s are when ho- Universal is putting out their first slate of horror movies uh, involving uh, characters from literature. Uh, you could say it's the first franchise in movie history. In a way. In a way. Or that, you know, you also had, like, I guess, Charlie Chan doing stuff or whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, I think the 1930s... like. People complain about movie franchises today, but I think that franchises have been around since the early days of movies. You're right. It's just that maybe they're not... We don't get the advertising that we do. uh, With time, we have filtered out most of the crap. Hmm. I think. When you say... What what do you mean? Like, back in the 1930s, I bet... There was a lot of cr- there were a lot of crap movies that came out. Well, yeah, well, a lot of and people kind of then, they knew their place, right? Is what but, I'm and saying. since then, the movies that we know about and have endured are the good ones, for the most part. Yeah, so, I mean, there are still crap movies that are like they're just not the getting here. into the Library of Congress. No, no, no. Unlike now, I don't know. If, I hope this isn't the Library of Congress, but Bride of Frankenstein. If it's not there, it should be. Yeah, I mean, one of the f- it's it belongs on the list of sequels that are better than the original. I would totally agree with that. I think that this movie, James Whale, definitely tried to do more with it. Boris think, Karloff certainly got a chance to shine. Yeah, in the first in Frankenstein, I mean, he's like the, he was the best thing about the original Frankenstein for me, his performance. But you know, he was basically just lumbering around, and at one point there was a girl and. Well, river. Colin Colin Clive was the main character. Uh, 
uh, yeah, Dr. he was the Frankenstein. doctor. Yeah, and you know he and he did his his great. It's alive, uh, you know, and he was the focus. And and Boris Karloff shocked everybody because you know that because of his look as the Frankenstein yeah. monster, and he, and you know he, yeah. he brought it. But you the know, his didn't hold up that well over time. No, uh, but Bride of Frankenstein comes along, and it's a parallel story of the monster and Doctor Frankenstein. Frankenstein's getting pulled back into the monster business. Mm-hmm. Frank, uh, the monster is trying to just stay alive. Yeah, you have that great scene with uh, the blind man, right? Um, which was later parodied in Young Frankenstein, of course. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> Parody is one of the most sincere, most sincere forms of flattery. Oh yeah, yeah. I could definitely say that uh, that you know when you watch. Brian Frankenstein is just so iconic. It's also a very funny movie. I remember the opening of that film. It has humor. You have yeah, it has humor. It has characters almost kind of commenting on. And it picks up and it picks is. up like right where it left off yeah. with Frankenstein. They're at the burned down mill. Yeah. Um and yeah, you can you can resurrect characters just like that, even though we are like, Yep, you died in a fire. <laughs> it's like, nope, you didn't die in a fire. You're alive. Well, hey, who's who's? It's 1935. Who's gonna notice? Hey, why don't you come in and check out Brian Frankenstein? It's playing today. Yeah, yeah. Man. <laughs> okay. 1930. 1930. Okay, I haven't seen this movie, but I thought I should mention it. It's called Hell's Angels, uh, a movie directed by Howard Hughes. Uh, I know about. I mostly know about this because uh, I've seen a little bit of the aerial flights in this movie. Um, you about to say something? No, keep going. Okay. And, uh, you know, they were depicted in uh, The Aviator, which was a film about Howard Hughes and, uh, you know, his you know making Hell's Angels and then making all these airplanes and his relationships. Um, I, I really want to see this movie someday soon. Uh, it it was apparently a movie where he, he actually shot the movie and finally completed it, but then went back and reshot the whole thing for sound. Must be nice to be rich. Yeah, well, he he kind of practically. Oh, nineteen thirty. Yeah, that's when the big sound turn comes. Yeah, that is when sound comes, and that's. I, it had been in there before, but I mean the the whole mm-hmm. pivot is in yeah. nineteen twenty nine, yeah. nineteen thirty. Yeah, and so Hell's Angels actually took three years to make, mostly because again he started off as a silent film, but then as he but then like the jazz singer comes along. And there's a scene in the Aviator where like he brings his producer with him to the theater. He's like, "Sound pictures are yesterday's news. We got to reshoot Hales Angels for sound." And, and he's, he's r- like, "How much of it?" He's like, "All of it." <laughs> and he's right because Jazz Singer came out a few months before uh, F.W. Murnau's Sunrise. Yeah, Sunrise tanked mm. because it was a silent film. Yeah, we talked about this. Yeah, um, I. Uh, yeah, but Hells Angels seems like uh, I don't know how much it's held up overall as a film, but I've heard. That the aerial sequences are still stunning, which was where Howard Hughes's head was really at. And know, its production is a bit of history in cinema. It is. I mean, it was like the fir- one of the first. It was an example of a huge uh, undertaking. Uh, it, it's the 1920s, 30s equivalent of like King Kong yeah. or uh, or or Furry Road or something. Actually, yeah, in a way, this is like Howard Hughes and George Miller are probably kindred spirits in that way. Um, now when we go back in time, uh, what's up? Can um, we stop for a minute? Sure. I gotta call my mom and tell her to get dinner right started. Oh. Okay. Um, so I was having a little trouble thing of 
something from 1925, unfortunately. Um, 1920, um, I believe that's when Fritz Lang makes one of his big movies. Uh, actually, hold on. Am I... Let me just look this up really fast. Oh! Oh! Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh, yeah. 1920. That was my first list movie from the you. first list movie. Now, here's the thing. I don't think Dr. Caligari has held up. I think we talked about that. Because yeah. it doesn't have a great script. What it has going for it is its look. Atmosphere. No, I'd, I'd say basically its look. Mm. The, the impressionist sets, the sort of weird geometry i think that's what it rides on okay. and it's still unique in the way that it looks right but i don't think the story is held up yeah All right, it's an early example of a twist ending that really doesn't uh hold any twist anymore mm. maybe not i think I, when i first saw it i got into it pretty strongly yeah. i think i understood like i knew where it was going for um but and it had a starring role for conrad veit who went on to Man who laughs. Yeah. Yes. All right. Now, one last thing to talk about. Now we go back a hundred years. We're a full hundred years in the past. Nineteen fifteen. Hundred years. Um. And you know, uh, while Orson Welles is being birthed into the world, uh, we get uh, two things that come out uh, that kind of change cinema history. We talked about uh, the Great Dictator. Uh, in nineteen fifty is when Charlie Chaplin releases a short called The Tramp. And we get introduced to the little tramp. Yeah, the the character that Chaplin is known for playing. Yeah, he's pretty much iconically connected to that I guy. Mean, you, you look at a picture of that and you're like, oh yeah, that's Charlie Chaplin. Everybody yeah. knows who Charlie Chaplin is because of that role. If you look at him without the tramp makeup, he actually isn't as recognizable. He no, just looks like if a, he doesn't have a tiny mustache, you don't know the difference. Not really, yeah. He, you have to kind of look closely to kind of notice it. Um, yeah, I, but like that's... The character he played is basically the face of Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, that's true. He looks weird without his mustache. <laughs> uh, there's no way of getting around it. Like he's that character is so recognizable. Yeah. That you that you can't separate it from Charlie Chaplin. No, not at all. And, and that character would come back in the Gold Rush, in City Lights, in Modern Times. The kid. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's a it's weird that you could have like one character. In all these different movies, yeah, and it's and it's still great. In a way, you could say he sort of made he sort of self-started his own franchise because you know out of his own vaudeville sensibility, he creates this one person who can be symbolic for a number of people who you know whether you're rich or poor or maybe especially if you don't have a lot in the world, the tramp is relatable. Yeah, he's a guy who's kind of down on his luck. Um, you know, sometimes tries you know he. When I think of the tramp, I usually think of him like kicking like a rich person and then turning around acting like he didn't do it. <laughs> or like uh, in the kid where he's running that scam where the kid throws rocks at the at the windows oh, yeah. and then he comes along and fixes the windows. Yes. Then they walk down the road side by side and he's like, "No, get away from me!" And he kicks him <laughs> away from the sh from him just to make it look like he's not with him. Yeah, everything down to the tramp. But he's walk. not. But he's not a jerk. No, no, he, he's he's not. just this guy down in his luck who's doing doing the best he can and he's trying to survive by by his wits. Yeah, kind of a Bugs Bunny sort mm -hmm. of. Uh, Bugs thing. Bunny with a little, sometimes a little more sentimentality. Yeah, you're right. You know, the end of City Lights. You know, I I always think about that as, oh, uh, you know, the, the last shot of City City Lights. 
the last couple of shots, yeah, where she's looking at him and he's looking at her, and the yeah. shot kind of fades out really slowly, and you still hear the music too. Yeah, that's an interesting touch. And also that year we get Birth of a Nation, and, and that's all the time we have for this show this week. Yes, <laughs> I'm not gonna talk. If about you Birth guys have a movie that you love that you want us to talk about, send us a comment. Tell us about it. We'll talk about things yes. that you like. What I think I'm going to do this week, um, and I'm sort of telling this to you the first time on Mike, I think I'm going to make an email address for the Wages of Cinema. Great. So that people can send us questions directly. Um, hopefully I don't get too much spam. Uh, but hopefully, <laughs> if you want to send us an, an email, uh, starting uh, this week, you can send it to uh, wagesofcinema at gmail.com. All right. And uh, also, uh, you can visit us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or on Facebook. Uh, at the, uh, you can check the Wages of Cinema podcast there. Um, please comment and subscribe on iTunes. Yes, please do subscribe. And, uh, you know, check out our other uh, interviews and segments that we do. Uh, we're going to come back uh, very soon with a special segment about the Cannes Film Festival. And uh, by someone who actually witnessed the horror firsthand. Con! <laughs> uh, so, for the wages of cinema, I am Andrew. I'm Jack. And the wages of cinema is death. Peace. Good night.